Hey everybody, it's Stefan, and this is a special edition of the Washington State Indivisible podcast. Today, to address the events of the last few weeks, we are handing the show over to our friend John Miller. He is Organizational Development Practitioner with the Department of Human Resources with King County. He is also the father of four boys, and he is a co-founder of a Black African Affinity Group for King County Employees. John, thank you so much for doing this, man. How are you right now? Uh, Thank you, Steph. Um, Right now, I am tired. I am tired. I'm still hopeful. Um, I'm ready to just kind of be still. Yeah. Well, I hear that, and uh, you've you've certainly earned that, so I, I wish that for you. I wonder if you could just tell us briefly a little bit about what we're about to hear. Absolutely. Um, we, we are uh, a brotherhood um, that has had uh, different interactions with one another uh, over the years. Uh, what you're going to hear are our unique experiences and also those experiences that we actually had in common. Um, some of the things we'll be hearing about one another for the first time. And um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where everyone was in a real authentic, raw space. And I, I'm hoping that the audience kind of feels that in the words and the tones um, that come to them over the airwaves. Uh, we've got folks that, uh, that uh, have career, uh, have been a life, um, spent their life in, in criminal, criminal justice as, as judges to PhDs to project managers to senior leadership in their organizations. Um, and what I'm hoping for is a rich experience, one where folks actually um, learn something about themselves. Um, the intention behind this was for us to hit everyone um, because I think the, the subject and the stuff that we talk about is relevant to all. Well, it's an enormously important discussion, and I am just in your debt for making it happen. I will mention to people before we get started that what you're about to hear has been edited for time and clarity. There is also an unedited version that is available at indivisiblepodcast.org. And so with that, we will hand things over to John. Welcome. I am John, a black male who identifies as he, him, his, son of D, Johnny, Pete, and Karen, grandson of Leola, Lawrence, Cecilia, and Quilla, partner of Lakeisha, father of Kyrie, Asias, Jaden, and Jeremiah. I am in perfection in pursuit of excellence. Welcome. With me, I have my brothers that are my collective brilliance and co-liberators, Judge Wesley St. Clair, Reginald Cole, Dr. Bryn Jones, Arthur Hendricks, Kevin Bett, Ade Franklin, who will have the opportunity to introduce themselves in a moment. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge our ancestors, including the many who lost their life to racism, police violence, COVID, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Manuel Ellis, Breonna Taylor, Charlena Lyles, and thousands of other brothers and sisters. I'd also like to take the time to acknowledge that we are on Native American lands original stewards of these lands. I want to call out the, the coastal Salish tribes that are within our region. A shout out to the Duwamish, the Lumi, Luke Muckleshoot, the Squally, and the Piala. And we have a responsibility to continue partnering with them to be honored in their stewardship of this land and follow their lead in being stewards as well. Missing is the Black African feminine voice and the voice of the Two-Spirit. 
there are other POC villages that are also missing from this space. I'd like to take a moment to express some gratitude to our partners, our family, and the community that holds us, Indivisible, and Stephen Cox for this opportunity to share a piece of our brilliance. At this moment, I'd like to engage our elder, Judge Wesley St. Clair, and ask for his permission in proceeding with this program. I'm very honored to be here uh, assisting in this process and look forward to the exciting conversation that I think can come from it. Please move forward. Thank you, Judge. I'd like to take a moment to talk about what we are not. We are not representatives of all Black, African-American, African voices, including perspectives and experiences. We are not perfect. Personally, my patriarchy and internalized racial oppression has consciously and subconsciously harmed members of our community. At this point in time, I'd like to ground in with a quote from one of the elders of our community, Dr. Cornell West. He says, it takes a courage to look in the mirror and see past your reflection to who you really are. When you take off the mask, when you're not performing the same old routines and social roles, it takes courage to ask, how did I become so well adjusted to injustice? So with that, I'd like to lead in to our introduction, starting with our elder, Judge Wesley St. Clair. Please let us know who you are and who claims you. My name is Wesley St. Clair. I am the son of Joseph and Margaret. I am the great-great-grandson of Elizabeth Prettyman Payne, a runaway slave from Maryland, who walked from Maryland to Kansas. She was pregnant with one child and had a six-month child in the course of that transition. I am a retired King County Superior Court judge, having spent almost 30 years in a system that is broken. And my response is the system works exactly as it's planned to have worked, marginalizing by generations poor black and brown people. It's almost an embarrassment to say that I've been a part of that system. But fortunately, I think we were able to begin the process to address some of the injustices that the system continues to perpetuate. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. Reginald Cole, who are you? Who claims you? My name is Reginald Barrington Cole go by Reggie with family and friends, parents, Alicia and Brian Cole, family from my dad's side from Joliet. We first saw one of the signs from the plantation. They were actually on the youngest of four boys. My brothers, Isaac Bajan and Jamal Cole, grew up and still staying in Skyway. Spent my whole career doing youth work in Skyway, Renton, Seattle, and now doing work than the government, all moving towards increasing youth and young adults' opportunities to strong values, resources, and relationships. My whole life, it's been very clear the haves and the have-nots in terms of power and resources from a systems perspective in our society. And thus, I've dedicated my life's work to shift that and really just be about ensuring that everyone in our society feels loved. When you have groups for years upon years upon years upon years that are not getting those resources shared across their society, those relationships, it truly, truly breaks my heart. And I think as the judge kind of spoke on it, the part that eats me up is out of all these years working to quote unquote move up in the system so that I can try to support my brothers and sisters. There's that much time that I've spent <laughs> in the system. 
trying to be quote unquote successful when that's so much more time I could have spent learning about my history, my culture, my family, my people. So it's an honor to be on this call with all y'all and I look forward to a good conversation. Thank you, Brother Reggie. Kevin, who are you? Who claims you? Thank you, Don. Um, Kevin Kibet here. I go by he and them. Oh, that's a heavy question. I am a descendant of the Nandi and the Keo people from the lands in Kenya, the Nilotic people group. Elizabeth sang as my mom. My upbringing has strong matriarchy. I got to honor. The firm is very strong in my life. They hold me, my sisters, my grandmothers, my aunts. I have two kids I come to this conversation with, Naima and uh, Malak, they, and all the pluralities that lives with them. They are of African, Syrian, and Scandinavian and English background, and all that multitudes that come with them. I also come to this as with a curiosity on how the struggle of people who've been here, my brothers and my people who've been here, and with the humility of learning and humility of sharing my life, but also learning and taking part in that struggle and showing how can I apply myself and my resources, my privilege, my connections, and trying to expand that understanding of what's normal, but also in trying to really understand the contract we have with other people, with everyone, whatever the least of us, as they are successful and as they are comfortable, then we all are comfortable. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Kevin. Appreciate that. Brother Ade, who are you? Who claims you? Thank you. I am blessed to be participating in this conversation. I am many. I'll start with my eldest ancestor that I'm aware of. He was born in bondage by the name of Alex Robertson. Upon Juneteenth, he changed his name to Alec Roberts and went on to work on railroads and was able to buy property that my family still owns in center Texas, outside of Houston. In talking to my grandmother before she passed, I found out that around that same time, another part of my family was Irish and an Irish man married a Native American woman and they had kids and all their kids married black folks. And so I do know a little bit about my history in that sense. I am a father and a grandfather. I am a partner to an amazing woman, and I really like to think of myself most of all as a teacher and someone that is practicing listening, doing a better job of listening. And John, you said something in your introduction that resonated with me about my patriarchy, something that I'm working on as well. I am a child of the South. While I was born and raised here in Seattle, I was the first person in my family born in Seattle and grew up in a Southern household. And, you know, we ate fried chicken twice a week, fried pork chops, fried fish once a week. So <laughs> I know <laughs> it was definitely a Southern household and, and generally had biscuits on the weekends, you know. So oftentimes people are confused when they meet me in Seattle because I don't come across as a Seattle light. And it took me a while to understand that that's because I grew up in this Southern household, living in Seattle, being raised with Southern traditions. I am practicing on being a servant, being both a leader and being a servant. That's one of my current passions and thing that I am working on most urgently at this time. I thank you again for having me. Thank you for being here, Brother Ade. 
Dr. Jones, who are you? Who claims you? Thank you, Brother John. I identify as he and him, and I am the son of Mona and Joe. And the relative that I'm aware of that's the eldest in my lineage is a freed slave by the name of Charlie Lake in Bolivar, Tennessee. I was able to see that for my own eyes. And my understanding, we are the original Kizzy and Kunta Kente story. So there's some discretion around what Alex Haley wrote relative to my family. Nonetheless, I am still a work in progress. I'm a father, a husband, I'm a man of great faith. By way of study, I am an expert in systems, yet I'm also a learner around systems. I'm inspired by helping people navigate systems and structures. And by way of experience and age, I'm approaching elder status. I don't claim that lightly, but it's something that I will have to lean into. And so I am still a student learning the ways of this world, trying to be in a transformative state at all times and in a state of continuous improvement. I have an empathetic way that I move around this space and time, and I'm appreciative of the things that come to me, and I will not conform to the patterns of this world, but I'll be renewed by the transformation of my mind. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Brother Art, who are you? Who claims you? My name is Arthur Bela Hendricks. You can call me Art. I am the son of Arthur Glenn Hendricks, but he went by Brownie, and my mother is Suzanne Virginia Truett. In my father's side, my father was one of 17 children, born to Alexander Brooks Hendricks and Willie Mae Carrington Hendricks. And the earliest lineage in terms of African heritage is Jesse Johnson, who was a mulatto and was essentially a free man. And then Mary Wilson, who became an emancipated slave in Johnson City, Virginia. I am biracial, so at the same time that I claim my African heritage, I also have to acknowledge that when I was born in 1962 in San Francisco, at a time of awakening in this country, and was denied entrance into my mother's parents' house because my grandfather was racist and refused to accept the fact that his grandson was mixed. I never met him, and when I had an opportunity, refused to meet him in large part because that die was cast. And I think my mother and father met each other at a point in this country where the conversation, the civil rights movement, I remember living in Toledo, Ohio in 1968 and seeing the riots in Toledo and in Detroit and being concerned for my cousins and staying up all night because the National Guard was called in and there were shootings in Detroit and being six years old, trying to process this and trying to process what it meant to be a light-skinned, light and bright brother in a chocolate city. And where was my place in terms of the world? So I think those early experiences shape who I am and what I do. So it really doesn't matter what my occupation, what my position is. I recognize the sacrifice of the people who came before me. And that's what I really sort of strive to is in terms of being able to fulfill that vision and that dream that has been with us for over 400 years. I think that's the emancipation and the liberation of not only bodies, but minds and spirits. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Gentlemen, I'd like for y'all to think about your experience in today's world. Brother Art, would you please opening and responding, sharing with others your experience? 
you know, it's just a mixture, uh, roller coaster of hope, excitement, just a lot of pride for the people in the streets who have said enough is enough, and fear, trepidation, agony, pain. I think that the experience now is one where I find myself really in a spiritual place in knowing that America is at a crossroads and we've been here before historically in the sense that we can choose the path of liberal democracy or fascism and just sort of being terrified in terms of the impulses and just the overall hatred that white people still have today. And in some ways, I'm both disgusted, but I'm also at a point where this is what needs to happen. We need to see it. We need to see it in terms of all its rawness. So I find myself really reaching out and just having a whole mixture of emotions. And I reach out to some of the brothers here on this call in terms of my network, folks who've been with me on this journey around supporting and uplifting those folks who are truly working towards liberation. I'm hopeful and I'm scared at the same time. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. Dr. Jones, what about your experience? Tell us a little bit about what you're feeling around what's going on in today's world. There's not really tangible evidence for being optimistic. We seem to be playing catch up constantly. But me personally, I'm choosing to stay optimistic because there's really no other way to exist. If we choose the former, we will, as a collective, gravitate to the minimal standard of living. One of our famous documents says, life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And I think we need to be focused on that pursuit of happiness somehow, some way. Even though there's this low hum of hostility that we experience every day, and it's a low hum of being discounted every day, but there's still great things about our walk. We have the opportunity to control our conditions, to think about strategies for our liberation, to be in a collective state with other brothers and sisters living in a way that we will have that pursuit of happiness. My faith is the sole purpose that keeps me optimistic, but it's tough. And it's this dual existence of having hope, but with no evidence that we'll be relieved of our collective condition anytime soon. But I'm choosing to stay in a state of vitality and really consider what's good in the world and spend time elevating that. And so that's kind of where I am right now, John. Appreciate that. Been spending a lot of time working to get to the point of our liberation. And I had settled on not even actually seeing it in our lifetime. Like my role was to create or lay the foundation for my children's generation to therefore get to this tipping point. And I find it fascinating that that typical point exists now and what we do with that. Brother Aday, would you mind sharing with us your experience in today's world? I feel similarly to some of the sentiments that have been expressed. There's part of me that has this hope and optimism and wanting to believe that we are at this jump off of this fulcrum of change where justice is finally going to outweigh injustice. I get choked up even talking about it because I am also very afraid that we won't realize our true potential here and leverage this moment into a brighter future, particularly for Black folks and for Black and Brown folks. And quite frankly, white people don't realize that they will also benefit from this true freedom within the United States. So I am living with this dissonance of hope and fear. 
and choosing like the brothers on the phone to live in that space of hope and belief. And still in the back of my mind and in my heart, I know that there's a possibility that Trump could get elected again. And the hurt that that would cause me is unbearable to really consider. Because in part, it means that all of these calls that so many brothers and sisters have been receiving from white folks asking us how we're doing is all just ploy and just meaninglessness. So I am quite optimistic and hopeful and definitely afraid of what could be. That is some candor right there. I appreciate that honesty. Brother Kevin, please share with us your experience in today's world. Thank you. I think I also come in plurality and duality. I come from a very tribal culture and in my familial experience and what I saw being applied is there was a sense of communalness. The way I put it in my mind at least was a conversation of like what quality of life that all of us should get as a community, just in honoring our humanness, what quality of life we should get. And it seems like that conversation has not been hard or a certain part of the community has not been hard And so the black community is being overlooked or is being looked as less. And so I come with anger in the sense there's some part of me that is really angry because from Ahmad Arbery and that essence of how can three people just callously take someone's life? And then for me, for that instance was just, why is it silent? Because where I come from, people would, or at least what I would see, people would say, wait, this is not us. And they will say, don't even do anything. We will go and find the people and we'll bring them and ensure justice happens. Then that continues on to Central Park. And I was just like, you totally understand the system and how you can put me in my place. And that was painful to, to realize that. And then to make matters worse, this weekend, someone was like, actually, you know, the saddest thing is many people who would do that, they would be marching in the streets. People who will be calling the cops will be marching in the streets. And I'm like, uh-uh. And then for Floyd, he used the same phrases Eric Garner used. That someone did not even see the humanity. He called out for his mother, did not even move someone. Ah. And then Tony McDade, that even in his death, we could not even honor him to pronounce him correctly. And then in Seattle, we go and we mess a 10-year-old. But also I hold that and I hold that and I hold that anger to push me towards action and commune with you in my community to figure out what action is. I also, I am a public servant and I also wonder what are the strategies, what are the things that we could do to ensure that we can do that work to, to, to see that change that happens. I am hopeful, but I'm curious what that would be. And to close out where I am at, Wangara Madai says that in every population, there seems to be a 25% and a 25% and a 50%. So the 25%, you would say good and evil, quote unquote, whatever that is. And then the 50% are swayable. And so depending on which of the 25% seems loud and majority, then they sway the 50%. And that is the point where the voice of we are tired, this is not acceptable, that will sway the 50% and it will sway the society to make concrete changes that we will go on for the next generation. We will say, indeed, we did our part. I'll say, brother, Reggie, share with us your experience in today's world. In terms of experience, it's kind of like I'm coming in and out, kind of like light switch being turned on and off, but I'm not necessarily the one turning it on and off. 
So one day I'll be protesting, speaking, and the next day I'll be jumping on a Zoom call and tears is running down my eyes and I'm wondering where it's coming from and things kind of just hit me out of nowhere. When I find myself on, I find myself really desiring and pushing to make change. I feel myself with a burning fire, really upset at what's going on and wanted to use that fire and that anger to make change. Because a lot of people want to talk about anger being a negative thing. That's the emotion that moves. And for all the people that see what's happening on the news, they're getting up, they're speaking up because it's bringing up emotion in them. Just really recognize that as a positive thing. And also when I'm on, I feel powerful. The Bible talks about being able to move mountains. And I feel like there's work to be done. And when there's work to be done for a just cause, anything can be done. And then the next moment I'm feeling off, dealing with grief, not even necessarily knowing it. And as I recognize it, it hits me a bit harder. And with the sadness that comes with that, this feeling of quote unquote, not feeling productive in my workspace and community overall with all things and powerless and thinking of the complexity of everything. So I think that feeling of kind of being on and off and not necessarily feeling like I'm in control of that per se has really forced me to try to be more aware and recognize that something's going on right now. I mean, look for the signs of what's going on. Being more prayerful, where it talks about renewing your mind daily. So when I wake up, I usually got negative thoughts coming in. I'm usually feeling that much less productive. Right before I go to bed, my brain kind of wants to be flooded with these thoughts. So really just being prayerful and recognizing there's something that's bigger than me. God is bigger than all of this. And regardless of what you believe, there's something that's bigger than us all that ties us together. And what does it look like for me to put my time and my energy into that and feed those thoughts rather than feeding the negative thoughts and just being neutral, being pulled to and fro by however the world wants to throw me. And I would say lastly, in all that, really meeting myself where I'm at. Where am I at in this moment, in this time and space, as well as where are the people around me at? How am I doing? How are they doing? What does it look like for me to put my mask on? What does it look like for me to step out in the streets? What does it look like for me to do what I need to do in the given time and consistently checking in? So it's a lot, but we've been through a lot for hundreds of years. So there goes that fire kicking up. <laughs> And that's all right. That is all right. Ah, thank you. Judge. I can really relate to Reginald's comments because shortly after I watched the first video, I was getting ready to go to bed and I started crying. Just bawling my eyes out. Couldn't stop. It took me an hour to stop because of the emotion that it's continuing. Another. And the callousness with which it was done. Add to it the Aubrey hunt, because that was a hunt. They were looking for him, and they hunted him down, and they killed him. And it took two months for them to report that, let alone Brianna is in her own house. They come in and shoot her eight times. So we're going through this PTSD, and we really need to be about the self-care process. I really like the conversation that I've heard that we have COVID-19 and then we have racism. And the racism pandemic is much more extreme. It's taken many more lives than COVID-19 did, although COVID-19 obviously manifests the impact of disparate healthcare access to opportunities because Black people represent around 13% of the population in the United States, yet they represent 40% of the people who are dying from COVID. 
So because I fall into this highest risk group, I'm staying away from people, being very remote. But I did happen to go to a community demonstration. And it was kind of amazing to see all the white people out there. They're chanting the signs. And then I think of Amy Cooper, who probably has the most insipid process where she said, you know, you in my space and I got control. And you could see her acting, oh, he's after me. He's, he's threatening my dog. Mr. Cooper speaks to the fact of there not being very many black birders. And then there's a couple of articles that talked about the absence of Black people and people of color in the national parks. And I've always been hesitant to go to national parks because white folks have got guns and they would do whatever the hell they want to to me because nobody cares. And I would take my kids and go, well, yeah, we want to go camping, but we need to make sure where we're going, that, that they're going to be able to survive. So I'm, I'm going through this emotional roller coaster that has me wanting to believe that, oh, this is different than all the other times. See, but I've been on this earth 70 years. And so I've lived through the 68 burnings around the death of MLK. They did the Kerner Commission, and these are the things we're going to do. And then that commission report is gathering dust. Hadn't been looked at since. But all the issues that it presented are still going on today. So as much as I want to be hopeful and say, this is different, I mean, it does feel different because the processes are happening in Frankfurt, in Berlin, in London, in Sydney, let alone most of the cities in this country. But racism is this insipid disease that last night, some white guy drives his car into a demonstration in Seattle, pulls out a gun, shoots somebody, and then he runs to the police. Help me. Protect me from those people. You know, I keep on thinking that as much as we want to believe that it's not going to be the same, I really want to believe that because I want to believe my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren, it's going to be different for them. You know, but we've been having some type of conversation about this disparate treatment since we've been here, but really for the last 150 years. Ain't much changed. We still got slave labor. You look at what happens in the prisons, paying people pennies an hour. Call centers are make furniture, are make mattresses. That's slave labor. The 13th Amendment says slavery is abolished except if you've been convicted of a felon. So now the goal is in mass incarceration, they can't buy convicted of a felony. So one, they can't vote, can't change anything. They lose their right to freedom of movement. And the law enforcement has this constant ability to mess with you. I was on a Zoom call with my grandkids. We were talking about the stuff that's going on. And they asked me, said, Grandpa, are you afraid? I'll go, baby, every time I get in the car, I'm terrified. If I see the red and blue lights on, am I going to walk away from this? Because of late, it's not been happening very good for us when that occurs. And here, this is me, who is a person independently elected, a county of 2.2 million people, judge. And there are times I'm terrified. There's some communities where I am really terrified. And now there's just the standard fear. Because when you talk about the experience today, for me, mine goes back. It brings things that happened in the 60s and the 50s, brings it to today as well. I keep on wanting to be optimistic. I need to be optimistic because otherwise I need to eat a gun.
because this is the emotional turmoil that we live with under this model of racism. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. Powerful, powerful, real lived experiences. We've all touched on these adverse experiences that we've had throughout our lives that have shown up in the form of hate, in the form of racism. This next question, I want to take it deeper. I want to take it internally. How has this hate, this racism of others manifested itself in you? Reggie, would you mind leading off? That question makes me think about, follows in position of some of our brothers and sisters that have been murdered. How would I react? I remember in college, we were trained to be minority peer counselors and talk about various types of isms, various types of workshops, et cetera. And they told us when we were graduating, don't forget your privilege. And we all kind of made some faces like, wait, what? Because the minority peer counselors were all students of color. And pretty much most of the students that were in that program had dealt with various levels of oppression. But when they talked about that privilege piece, they were really reminding us of coming out of an Ivy League institution, there's going to be an expectation that we support our community in a certain way. So when I think about some of these murders and I think about what's boiling up in me and that anger, that hate that I see in the society, it's like, okay, man, I've been in so many white institutions and have practiced and trained and prepped for certain situations, you know, put your hands on the steering wheel, don't talk back. And as all this stuff has happened, I feel it boiling over. And I'm just like, man, if somebody was to put their hands on me in the wrong way, to slam me in a certain way, I feel like I put in all these years of work to navigate your systems, and yet you're still going to treat me this way. And regardless of what I do, it don't matter what I do, you're going to do this no matter what. I was in a conversation with my family and they was kind of talking about like us as black people and regardless of the pain that we go through, we're all about bringing people in. We're all about forgiving folks. We're all about oneness. So the fact that this oppressive system can bring out this level of anger, this level of violence, build this pressure pot to make me want to act in a way that I would never want to act in this thing that I've trained my whole life to not do. I can only imagine what my brothers and sisters are dealing with when they've dealt with that much more oppression than I've dealt with, when they've had that much less experience of exposing these different spaces to work on and talk through. And I can't even put it into words, but I think that it's crazy because it's just like my core, my being as a black man, as a man of God, is love and it's peace. You know, when I think about the situations that we are put in because of these broken systems, and how that brings up these visceral reactions in me. It's a shame, it's unthinkable, and it's pretty darn ridiculous. And I know when people make comments of like, oh, I agree with these protests, but I, I can't. These riots, there. what are they doing? It's just like, man, what would you do if somebody had their knee on your neck? If somebody killed one of your family members? If somebody ran up into your house? As many people want to talk about, it's my right to go get a haircut. It's my right. I need to be able to go get some food. I can't stay in my house all because of COVID. Because of COVID, there's so many more layers of oppression that people are dealing with. And look how they're still responding regardless. They still show up with love. You still got people putting up social media stuff, dances, and how we're strong, and just different things to show how we're thriving. Let, let me see you deal with that level of pressure, that level of oppression for a week and not want to snap. <sighs> yeah, that's, it's, there, there's a lot in there. Brother, that resiliency you speak on is so legit. Dr. Jones, share with us how has hate of others manifested itself in you? Thank you, bro. Hate has really made me grow up too fast and forget about my childhood. 
when I was a kid, I could do everything, be everything, solve all the world's problems. There were no limits. There were no restrictions. We could ride our bikes. We could run and think we were the fastest. We could jump, think we could jump the highest. There was no problem that we couldn't resolve as a kid. And at some point, this level of hate, and the judge talked about this PTSD, which becomes part of us, prevents us from dreaming like that, prevents us from being great. We can get to a level of success, but because we're dealing with this hate, it distracts us from the dream. It distracts us from having an optimistic vision. And I question, am I well enough to dream and lead others to their own greatness because of the restrictions that I might have on me that I didn't have as a child that I've learned through living and having this constant oppression? And that constant oppression may not look physical, it may not look violent, but it's constant. And so there's a dampering or the flicker of the flame instead of this hot flame that we used to have, that I used to have for uplifting people and being great and being Dr. King and being seven years old, testifying in front of the school board that Dr. King was a great man. Let's change the name of this school to Martin Luther King Elementary School and it happening. And I saw that happen to an older person that doesn't have that vigor. By all accounts, if you looked at my resume, you say that brother is successful, but I'm not necessarily living the dream. And my brothers around me aren't necessarily living the dream. And we haven't probably realized our greatness. And if we were asked, what do we want? I think 99% of us would say, I wanna be liberated. I wanna be able to do the same things as my white counterparts can do. But that's just meeting a standard that's the same as everyone else. We don't have this desire collectively to be superstars, to be wonderful, to be fantastic, to exist in this state of euphoria. And how do we get there? And I think that's the whole dynamic of hate and this internalized racism and internalized oppression kind of puts us in a straitjacket and shackles and we can't spread our wings. We can't soar above situations. And so I'd like us to get back to being childlike and innocent in our dreaming without having had these oppressive experiences that take us away from being that great individual that we can all be. And so I even question my coaching of others. Am I coaching others to rise above the system or am I coaching others just to navigate through the system? And so hate has this deep maneuvering of your mind to prevent you from being able to transform your situation. And so that's how I see hate manifesting in myself and similarly situated brothers and sisters and just oppress people, that they can't rise above their situation. Of course, there's all kinds of structural things that are preventing that. But the things that we're in control of sometimes prevent us from dreaming in that way that we did as a kid. Mm, I'll take a moment after that one, Doctor. Brother Art, mind sharing with us how hate manifested itself in you? I shared about my childhood and just out the gate, not even being able to understand the situation of being a mixed child of a black man and a white woman. And I'll be honest with you, man, I have reflected a lot on situations in my childhood. My father died when I was eight. I saw addiction. My dad was one of 17 kids and half of my uncles, 14 boys, three girls, you know, died of some type of addiction. And we're talking about in Toledo, Ohio, 
in Midwest City where it's a tough place to live, white, blue-collar racism, seeing my father go to work for Chrysler and seeing my family. And you go to Toledo, Ohio now, man, and it's, you talk about institutionalization and racism, it manifests itself in the ain't shit there. They divest it in whole communities in the United States with this promise of we're going to get a piece of the apple pie. And then my father died when I was eight, and my mother remarried. His name was Fred Lewis, and he did two tours in Vietnam, was a prisoner of war, had been shot 13 times, had a steel plate in his head, had his pinky toes cut off. He was from Galveston, Texas. He was a strong black man, and I used to be riding with him, and I remember riding in Springfield, Oregon, and he got pulled out of a police car, mistaken identity. We know who you are. We don't need to see your ID. And I saw him beat down with nine police cars with batons and damn near killed this man. And so for me, the hatred of racism and the targeting of Black people and Black men causes me incredible pain. And when I got to a point where I could start making choices, for me, the struggle really was about confronting this white racist system. And in some ways that confrontation of the white racist system is confronting my own family. It's confronting my friends. And so I started working in the prison system, and I think Judge will relate to this, in that Brent talked about just being able to be uninhibited. And I remember those days, 1970, 1972, there's this period of time in America where you started to see a rise in the black middle class, and you started seeing black neighborhoods. And then all of a sudden you had crack cocaine, you had militarization of police forces. You had Daryl Gates talking with battering rams in Los Angeles. And you had Bill Withers worked on an assembly line in Los Angeles and played guitar in the evenings. And he made it big, but he was one of those brothers that worked in plants in Los Angeles and California. I know whole black men, I can tell you name after name. They didn't go to college. They didn't go to university. They worked on the space shuttle because they were in the SEBA program and they were in the job training program. And they were able to get a trade. They were able to provide for their families. And all of that got wiped away with Reaganomics, all of that got wiped away with, we now have super predator black kids that are out terrorizing. And so what we need to do is we need mandatory sentencing. Within four years, what you saw was 49 states in this country revise their criminal justice system so that if you did one crime, if Louis Armstrong were born in the 90s, he would have been in prison as opposed to becoming the greatest trumpet player that this world had ever known. And what you saw was the mass incarceration of Black people. And so for me, how I had to counter that hate and how I see that hate showing up in myself is to recognize when I'm aligning myself with the narrative that has been told by white America to divide poor white folks from Black folks from the time this country was founded. I had the good fortune to go to school with Derrick Bell Jr. His dad was Derrick Bell, a civil rights attorney at Harvard, and he wrote a book called Faces at the Bottom of Love the Well, The Permanence of Racism. And race has always been used as a convenient narrative for the affluent whites to divide poor white folks by saying, well, I may not have anything, but at least I'm not black. And it's ironic to me that white men can storm into 
governors, state legislatures talking about, we don't want the government taking away our civil rights. We don't want the government infringing upon our freedoms. And yet a police officer can choke out a man. There's nothing more than taking away the civil rights than taking away somebody's life. And we all being innocent bystanders. And I think bystander powerlessness is one of the things that we're experiencing. There was nothing that anybody could do that stopped that police officer from not choking that man. And we videotaped it and we watched. So the hatred is consistent. It's constant. It is embedded in our narratives. It is embedded in everything that we do. And every day I have to confront me around what am I doing? Am I putting my knee on somebody's neck? I work in a job where I can play a gatekeeper. Do I stand in the way of progress or do I get the hell out of the way? And more importantly, do I love thy neighbor as thy brother? Do I do that? Do I exemplify that in terms of what King envisioned for us in terms of a beloved community? So one of the things I've been saying to young people who have been talking to me about is this is your time. And I've been saying, Malcolm X said, if you wait for justice, it's not going to come. You got to take it. And this is your chance. You better take it because you damn sure know that the counter is going to happen. And so for me, I know that I have to be stand up and counted. I used to have this really good friend. His name was Terrell Johnson. Terrell passed away about 10 years ago. He's from Louisiana, dark skinned brother. And we used to have a consulting business together. He always used to say, partner, all I want to know is when the revolution happens, what side you going to be on, <laughs> right? He used to say that to me every day. And it was an understanding between us that he loved me. But his point was, I can't hide, brother. Like when the revolution happens, they know who I am, where I am, where, I, where I'm at. I need to know where you're going to be. You can't do that Richard Pryor thing that whatever gang's winning, you're going to be on that side. You got to stand up and be counted. And so that's what I try to do. I try to examine myself. I try to listen to others. And I damn sure ain't going to pass and not claim who I am. Thank you, Art. That's something legit. A question we can put out to the white audience that listens to the voices that we're sharing is, what side of the revolution against racism and justices will you be on? Where are you? Where do you stand? Judge, how has the hate of others manifested itself in you? Self-hate has been strong in my life, something I've dealt with on a regular basis. When you're in an institution that really looks backwards, the courts look backwards. They look at precedent, what the case law shows, and what the prior laws were and how they have evolved. And so courts have been institutions that really hate change and will do everything in its power to not be a part of the change model. The change has to be really crammed down their throats and where they see they have no choice. So in the course of me having become a judge and having been a judge for my 30 years, I was always in a model of, do I belong here? Someone would say, judge, and I wouldn't be talking to me. You talking to me? <laughs> and then of course you would also have the institutional racism kind of present itself as many employees would say, who is this black guy telling us what to do? Or you would have litigants come in and say, whoa, we got him? Who is he? And so that works on your psyche and says, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Well, hello, I went to Yale University. But I always had this process that says, oh, that's right. I was an affirmative action baby. I got in on a, you know. Fortunately, my wife and actually some colleagues that I participate in circle with 
however you got into Yale had nothing to do with where you are today and the awards and accolades that you have acquired. I've been blessed because a couple of years ago, I got some brothers together, some who are actually on this call, and began the conversation of self-hate, especially when you're operating in primarily white space where you are the pepper in the sea of salt, and you have certain institutional roles that they want you to take. When I told people I was retiring, a couple of my white colleagues came up to me and said, Wesley, what are we going to do? Who's going to be our conscious? Who's going to keep us straight when we got that racist shit going? I said, well, I don't have it. Why is it my job that I'm supposed to bear this brunt of this? I need to call you out. I mean, I'd be in a meeting, 25 people in the meeting, two blacks. And somebody would say something that was clearly inappropriate. And they look at me. <laughs> I go, why do I have to respond to that stuff? It shouldn't be a part of my job to do that. So fortunately, I, in dealing with some brothers, we created this camaraderie that said, oh, you're feeling the same thing I'm feeling. We created the space where there's an ability to have a level of vulnerability, yet safety. Because they know what happens in that space, the sacred space, stays there. There's a level of confidentiality that's associated with it. Because I got to tell you, we got judges. We got prosecutors, we got leaders at a variety of levels within the county, principals of both private and public schools. It's a place where you could say, this is what I'm feeling. And a place that through that process, let me deal with my rage. Because there's anger and then there's rage. Now, anger is good, I think, as Reginald said, because it spurs you on. Rage is an acid that eats you away from the inside. And so by working with this group of men, black men, it really gave me ability to let go of some of that rage and help me to begin the process of healing myself because we got to heal ourselves. We have so much pain. We have this process where our physical health is impacted by that pandemic called racism. We know COVID-19 kills us, but racism the way it operates, like air conditioning, always in the background, has this toxic stress impact on our health. That's why we got diabetes, we got obesity, we got high blood pressure, we have high cholesterol, because of what that racism noise creates. So it's through this sharing of the challenge of how do we deal with our self-hate that gave me the ability to begin this process of healing and has led me to this spiritual journey that says, oh, I don't have to live in this place. I really can create something different. So as challenging as it has been for me in dealing with institutional self-hate, because it's institutional, because I'm dealing with microaggressions and macroaggressions in an institution that doesn't like people like me, because I'm the manifestation of, we're supposed to be oppressing you. It's interesting as we talk about privilege, and we are privileged. We have resources at our disposal. We have relationships at our disposal that others don't have realistically. And there are times when you find yourself not only as an oppressed, but also as an oppressor. And realizing that you're wearing that hat gives you, I think, a better appreciation of how to navigate this process. Dr. Jones talked about, do I teach me how to navigate or do I teach me how to overcome it? My mama taught me, Wesley, you got to be five times better than white people in order to achieve the same thing. That's true. But what a burden that we have to carry. That I got to be that much better than them? 
Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Brother Kev, how does hate of others manifest itself in you? That's a heavy question. And I appreciate the invitation to turn the camera inside oneself. And it's interesting, the very same thing. When you asked that question, I jotted some things down. And it's been hit by several many people. And probably I'll start with self, just the hatred of self. And that even comes from being not seeing myself for fully who I am. And you will realize in my introduction, I did not even honor the male part of where I came from. And that my relationship, my dad is not there. He wasn't there. So that's that. So there's that. I got to deal with that. But also then I thought about it and I was like, wow, have I decolonized my mind? This week, one thing that has held me up and assisted me is thinking back on my people like, just with bows and arrows, we kept the British at bay for a long time before they could come and build a railway through our highlands. But nonetheless, there was still some decolonization. And then coming, following on to what the judge said of this high expectation of ourselves, that for people who are looking like me, then I've got a high expectation of them. And that then this free pass that I give to people just because of skin color. Oh, man. And in how many instances have I done that? And then in what place do I stand and tell someone, you're being racist? Well, in instances, I've almost done the same thing. And then to make matters worse, then in being an oppressed person, then you figure out the system. And as, once you've learned the system, then you play the system to be well, for it to work for you. Because then if you don't, then it's a matter of life and death, hunger, and all that. But then you get in, and then you tokenize. And then you're benefiting from the tokenization. And now you continue the oppression of the others. Because then you're this mortal person. What a way to carry one. And then what a way to carry for the others. I appreciate some of you for having really nice sentiments of like, oh, we're not holding the door. We're checking off those hinges so that people can come through. I, I appreciate that but I see that work in me. I'm standing on many people's shoulders. Today, in what sense have I laid my life down for others? And even to make matters better or worse, others who look like me, whose struggle is like me. And double that on, I have been in this country only for nine years. And quote unquote, I have options. There is no options. You've lived with this all your lives. And you still show up in all the greatness, in all the majesty, in all the beauty. Oh, yeah. Thank you, brother. Hmm. Brother Ade, how has the hate of others manifested itself in you? First, let me recognize Brother Quebec for the courage to be vulnerable in the space and to show so much emotion and so much passion in his words. Thank you for that. I think, depending on my age, hate has had a different impact on me. In my youth, growing up in a beautiful Black neighborhood that was the CD, where community parented everyone. And as much as you didn't want to act up at home, you better not act up at somebody else's house, because that get back home, that's the worst kind of trouble to get into. I lived on the edge of the city, and so in one direction, going down towards the lake, it got affluent and white. 
and then going back over the hill towards Martin Luther King and 23rd back into the heart of the CD, it got poorer and browner. And so I think in some ways, the love of that community was in shielding us from the hate and talking to us about it in a way and letting us know like, hey, you've got to behave a certain way. The way families only let us go so far. They didn't want us to get too far away, getting into white neighborhoods where they were, I imagine, concerned about what would happen to us. So I would say in my early childhood, there was a bit of unawareness of the hate. It was spoken to, but I didn't see it because I was sheltered and lived in this beautiful community where there were so many arms around us, holding us and protecting us. And as I started to really see this difference between the haves and the have-nots and living in this area, I really think that drove me into some insecurities about myself, which led to drug use and even, I would say, drug abuse in high school and college years, actually. I think it also fueled anger in me, too. There was definitely a time in middle school when I had a rage in me that was uncontrollable. And even thinking about it now, it it really scares me even thinking about it. So hate has had a lot of impacts on me. I think professionally, that hate of being in an engineering field really packed with white folks and growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood and not feeling like I fit in to that community. I remember even being at Garfield and not wanting to take the AP classes because it was all white folks in those classes. For as diverse as the school was, it really, in many ways, was two schools, school for the whites and Asians and another for the Black folks and the Latinos and Southeast Asians. And so the hate that caused that segregation, I think, confused me, and I wasn't sure who I was. And so, again, hate has had a bunch of different impacts on me. I think there was a time when it fueled me knowing that the modicum of success that I was able to achieve and anything that I was able to do stood in contrast to that hate or in opposition to that hate. I remember buying my first house and thinking, y'all have had a 400-year head start on me, and I caught you. I'm living in this neighborhood by the house right next to you. I have caught you in some sense and feeling some pride about it. and also recognition of all the love and, that had been poured into me. I think it has, in my career, it's also led to self-doubt and not feeling like I was worthy, a lack of worthiness from being told those aren't good ideas and to have somebody else say the exact same thing and it becomes a brilliant idea. And so there was, I think, at times when it fueled self-doubt and even, I would say, even some pity, a little bit of a pity party, not knowing how I would get through. So difficult question. I also think there was a period in my life when earlier I spoke about this drug use and drug abuse. I really think that was about numbing myself to this pain that I was feeling, not necessarily understanding, knowing that to get away from that could be found in a 40 or a spliff. I think that hate has forced me to look back and to see all these different manifestations and to know that the hate is not necessarily about me as an individual, as a person, and that it doesn't control me any longer. I don't need to show up in a way to prove to white people that I'm worthy. I don't need to do that anymore. It took me some time to grow into that, but now that's a place that I'm 
I think the hate has in some ways reminded me of my family and how loving we are. And I think white people are really afraid that if black folks were to be in power, that we would want to oppress them. And it's just a further demonstration of how little they know about us and how they don't really see us because we never wanted to oppress anyone. It is not what we're about. We just want to be able to go for a run safely, go to bed in our house and sleep without fear of being murdered in our own homes. Maybe even get our hustle on a little bit without selling cigarettes, trying to make ends meet without being killed, doing no one any harm. I think the hate has helped me see our humanity today, at least that's the impact that it's having on me and realizing that the thing that Black folks want isn't to be, quote, in power and to be the oppressor. We really want to be the liberator, the co-liberator, and to see love spread and really for love to be the center of what society is about as opposed to profits. And so the hate has made me today, has given me a certain amount of strength and reflection to see myself and to see our people more clearly in opposition to love and in love with love. Thank you, brother. That is some big stuff. And it's a great segue into the next question. It's actually a two-parter. And I'll start with Brother Art. What gets in the way of your ability to love in expression and behaviors? and be loved? And how will you overcome it? I just want to appreciate everybody's vulnerability, sharing personal stories. Ade touched on an element of my existence in that I think having to navigate two worlds, the cognitive dissonance and the self-hate, the internalization of all the things that we've all been deluged with. And I will say that my family in the Black community, I was born in San Francisco and earliest parts of my memories were there were a lot of mixed race couples. It was a bubble. And that was my whole world. I didn't know about these other places. And I remember going to Toledo and, you know, I didn't see color. I didn't see race. You know, my mom was my mom. My dad was my dad. And I remember getting invited over to my cousin Peggy's house. And my dad was the youngest boy. And so he and Peggy were tight. And I remember we had dinner. They were drinking. And my cousin Peggy called my mom out and said, oh, so you're just a white girl. She was sharing with her, like, your experience is not my experience. I'm a black woman. This is 1968. She's like, oh, Sue, so you're a white girl. You know, you, you don't know nothing. My mom was like screaming. She was yelling, I'm not white, you know, blah, blah, I'm not white, you know. She held up this pack of Kent cigarettes and she was like, this is white. You know, I'm just a person and you know what I'm saying. And Peggy just said, well, damn, Sue, you say you're not white, but your face is getting mighty red. And somebody talked to Peggy and was like, whatever's going on with Sue, you need to let that go. And I'd go over to my family's house and it was like, Bela, come here. And just the love and given that my grandfather was a minister, we were taught that all things on this planet have value and that we need to love one another. And then I moved to Oregon. A good friend of mine, we were mixed. We used to hang out. I remember sleeping over at his house and waking up in the morning and there's a burning cross in the front yard with a sign, nigga love, get out, get out of here. I was 10 years old. So you internalize that. And in a lot of ways, it's like we turn to drugs now called to anesthetize that pain. 
and those addictions become real. It was real for me at one point. At one point, I got into my life where I realized that I can make a difference. I believe I can make a difference. Now, whether I make a difference or not remains to be seen. But I believe I can make a difference. And the reason I believe that is because I was told that by my aunt Zubi. Boy, you can open doors for somebody. You can make a difference. And so for me, that is the spiritual journey. And I appreciate the judge talk about spirituality. I think you get to a certain point in your life where you start getting in touch with the inevitability. And so for me, everything I do really is to honor the love of my family in terms of the work that they gave me. We didn't have a whole lot of anything. We were poor, but we had each other and we had that love. And the place that where I felt accepted and I felt like I could just be me, who I was, not put on air, was in that family. So I just try to really just hold that to my heart. I've been cleaning this over 38 years. 38 years, man. 19 years old, turned my life around. I got a call last week. I used to have this position down in Portland, was head of equity of this organization. I remember hiring this brother. He had his PhD, and I think he was making like 30000 a year. Nobody would hire him. And I hired him into this position. I told him three years ago, I said, you know what, man? You're going to have my position one day. Brother called me up last week, said they offered me the position. A good friend of mine, Vicente Harrison, I hired that brother eight years ago. He didn't know nothing about being no park ranger. He didn't know nothing about no environmentalism. Brother is an author. He's written two children's books about environmentalism. He's the head park ranger in the Portland Parks and Recreation. And he is becoming one of the leaders in his field. And it wasn't because of what I did. It's because that brother was talented. And so everything that Ascente did, the only thing I did was just said, brother, I'm giving you an opportunity. I said the same thing when I said it. One day you won't have this position. So for me, I take whatever self-hate, the antidote of hate is love. Always has been, always will be. And not love of me, but love of another. It's not love of self, it is love of others. That is the antidote to hate. So I appreciate y'all. Yes, sir. And yes, sir, your presence in itself made a difference in that brother's life. And that's where that interdependence and interconnection is so legitimate and how we got to show up in one another's world. Brother Kev, what gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and be loved? How will you overcome it? I think what's familiar, whatever I saw was the act of service as a, as a mode of showing love. And so anytime love is being addressed to you, you deflect it and you're like to the other and never you. Or even that's the point of like, is being loved something I'm worth it? Because then I also come with priorities in my life, like in my family of origin, I see people who are really affluent, but also see people who are really struggling. And then in all this, is it really okay to be loved? Well, there is a lot of issues and carrying the weight of the world. What gets in the way of my loving of other people, sometimes wanting to do it right, perfection, or even, it's interesting what Ade said about the way the African people, black people, we all we wanna do is just love. And right now, even I was just sitting with it and I was like, for so long, because my, my experience in the States are so being white, I've been in this posture of trying to prove myself, to prove that I'm worthy, worthy of your time, 
whether you're the rich community or even just worthy of rich connection. And not until I met you all, Ade, John, and Brent, and sitting in just conversation, we share bread and we ate and we just went deep. And I was just like, ooh, that is right. That is possible because it's one of those you just like continue and you're just, okay, acceptance of this is the way it is. And the connection to other people, finding people can allow yourself to see that in them and then allow yourself to sit in it. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. Brother Reggie, what gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and be loved? How will you overcome it? Man, oh man. It's funny. Uh, <laughs> I was riding in the car one day with my oldest brother, Jamal. He's a pastor in Skyway. And I was like, man, everybody else in the church got a testimony. Why I ain't got one? <laughs> and as folks, you know, are on the phone talking about various addictions, and I've been dealing with a lot over these past 10 years. And even though I'm young, people, oh, you young, whip a snap, but you ain't. It's like, man, I, I hear you. I, I try to do a lot of reflection, a lot, try to do a lot of growth. And when I look over time, there's been a lot going on. And, and when I think about the term addiction, I feel like Kev kind of spoke to it that perfectionism. It's like I'm either addicted to perfectionism or I'm addicted to hopelessness. As Jeff St. Clair mentioned, that feeling of being at Yale, like I purposely, when I get into a new role, oh, where'd you go to school? I went to school on the East Coast. Why don't you say that you went to Brown University? Well, because I don't want you to automatically think I'm potentially somebody and then only judge me based off of that. I'm going to show you that I'm somebody and then later on you can figure it out. But then on the flip side, I also don't want to tell you that I ran track because then you're going to potentially think that's the only reason I got in consistently like this battle when I think about it dealing with the perfectionism because I'm black but dealing with hopelessness because I'm me something's going well it's like I'm pushing I'm pushing you know I'm this black man I gotta prove myself but when I'm failing it's me and it's just like wait a minute that don't make sense but we don't typically take time especially as black men to stop and be able to reflect and I remember one of my teammates was like man come on man you know Nike just do it you know it's just like Dog, I can't just do it no more. <laughs> and I think it was a struggle because I felt very broken. I remember growing up and it's just like, we don't trust counselors. We don't trust this. We don't do that. And I was like, I got to figure something out. Finally, I saw a counselor. Finally started talking to some folks. And I was like, okay, there's definitely some deeper things going on here. So it's still a process. I still am struggling right now with this idea of I have to get things just right. I think also religion being a big part of things. It's like, oh, I don't want to sin. I don't want to do the wrong thing. Let me be perfect also for that way. So I think I'm finally getting to the point where I'm fighting against it. It's like, okay, I am a human being. I am worthy, period. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to come up with these other reasons as to what makes me worthy. So I think that's one, and I struggle with that one because I think there's that black piece and there's that piece of you have to be good. You have to live a certain way as a Christian. I think about like social justice, it's like, oh, you know, where did I get this bend to do social justice work? Because I'm a believer of God and God being a just creator and a loving creator. People will argue about different things. It's like, you know, again, at the end of the day, however we got here, I hope that the creator is just and loving, period. So when I think about trying to get to a place, I feel like it's really just a matter of practicing, reflecting, and learning about love. And I also kind of remind myself on one hand, when I feel bad about like, oh, you get this because you're an athlete or yada, yada, yada. It's just like, those, that also gave me amazing skills. 
I trained and I practiced hours. You were in class and then kicking it and had a bunch of time to do homework. I was in class and in practice and had to do homework. I learned to show up day in, day out, three hours in the gym, eating a certain way, training myself. I learned camaraderie with my teammates. There were so many skills I learned through athletics. And a lot of times I'll forget about those things. So one of the practices I've been working on, I mentioned earlier, you know, prayer, awareness, meet myself where I'm at. I'm trying to take something I put so much of my time into since first grade doing sports is what does it look like to take love and treat it like a sport? Let me practice it. Let me learn it. Let me compete and let me get ready for the championship. And I don't know what the championship looked like, but I definitely know that at the end of the day, I'm excellent on the court. I'm excellent on the track. I'm excellent as a brother. I'm excellent in so many ways. But at the end of the day, I'm excellent as a human. And what makes me human is that I'm a loving human being. I have other people to love. So let me learn how to put my mask on when I need to and consistently put masks on others, take care of others. And it's a journey. I'm used to having all the answers. I grew up not being a know-it-all in terms of like prideful-wise. I was just always trying to like do the right things. I stayed ahead of the curve. And now I'm like, man, I'm so, I feel so behind the curve. And I'm finally starting to let that go. And I think the other piece is staying in these circles. Staying in circles with Black men, staying in circles with community, and my passion, my work, staying in circles with the youth. Because the youth, I can spend day in, day out with the youth and just supporting them and love with them because they, they are always so authentic. They're always so real. And I think that's, again, what as a people that allows us to be so loving is because, like, we show up, we show up real. So when we see other people that aren't real, it's like, hey, be yourself. <laughs> Come around us. We'll treat you and love you for who you are. Again, just, you know, really treating it like that sport, getting into it getting nitty gritty with it, really diving head first into this idea of love and understanding, you know, who I am, where I come from and what I'm all about. Mm. All I got is for you, brother. <laughs> all right now. Brother our day, what gets in the way of your ability to love and expression of behaviors and be loved? How will you overcome it? I have to really rephrase the question because I feel like about two years ago or so is when I first started being able to receive love fully. And so there's a bit of it that is in my rearview mirror. And I'm reflecting on that journey of how do I get to a place where I could fully give love and receive love. And I was thinking about some of the work I had to do. Both my maternal and my paternal grandfather's both left their families when my parents were young, two, three, four years old, left, started new families. One started a family like down the street kind of thing. And that my parents found each other and ended up getting married and starting a family was something. My parents got a divorce when I was in elementary school, pretty young, second, third grade. Somehow that intergenerational sense of abandonment was one of the things that prevented me from loving and receiving love. I think love has many ways of showing up and receiving love can be showing up in many ways too. And for me, one of my big things was, I would say no to help. Somebody giving you a helping hand is often a sign of love. I'd rather struggle and fail and suffer than to say yes to some help. Feeling like that would make me less than or I had something to prove my ego getting in the way. I remember this day. It sounds really silly and it's not a big thing. I really appreciated pie. I like pie. And somebody asked me, did I want a piece of pie? And I said, no, just out of like habit. My habit was to say no. And that night I remember thinking, why did you do that? And I decided I was going to start saying yes when people would offer friendship or these small kindnesses to me that I would say yes to it. 
and not worry about being in debt to somebody else. I didn't mind doing for others, but it was really hard for me to receive from others. That was the turning point for me, just being able to say yes to these kind gestures from other people. And continuing to grow, I had to really learn to listen to other people. Because people, when it comes to giving love, we really need to listen because people are telling us what it is that they need from us. And being able to listen and hear that and give, if it's a match, at least, the love that a person wants or the love that a person needs, the action that a person needs to feel love will come somewhat naturally to us. There's a fit that happens there. Learning to listen. I think was part of what I had to do to be able to love and to receive and to give love, to feel love. The other thing too was being able to acknowledge the harm that I've done, whether that be intentional or unintentional. I can be an asshole on purpose, but what I didn't realize is that I'm an asshole sometimes without knowing it. And so being able to apologize for those be able to acknowledge that I have caused harm, even though unintentionally accepting responsibility for that and apologizing to that, growing into that space, I think helped put me in a better place to be able to love and receive love. The thing that still gets in the way is being present and being in the moment, not getting ahead of myself and really just enjoying the moment. Oftentimes, when we think of love, it's really easy to get to romantic love and even familial love. And oftentimes, within the Black community, finding the brotherly love that we share, the folks on this phone call that we share, can be hard to get to. I think some of it's misogyny. I think some of it's homophobia. And so understanding myself and who I am and what I'm about and grounding into that has allowed me to open up to my brothers in a way that has really nurtured loving relationships with my brothers. And so I think there's some growth and some fears and not worrying about the perceptions. My parents were not people who said, I love you a bunch. Their idea of love was providing for me. Discipline was a form of love. Keeping me safe was a way of them showing love. And so learning to even be able to tell, particularly my male friends and even my non-romantic female friends, that I love them, that took a lot for me to grow into that, in part because that wasn't the environment that I grew up in. I think reflection is something that has helped me get to this place, getting over myself, not letting my ego get in the way or things that I had to do to be able to get to a place of being able to give and receive love. And sometimes I think the thing that gets in my way now is forgetting to practice. That's fair. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. Judge, what gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and how will you overcome it? It's typically me that gets in the way. Of course, there are life experiences. I think that we all have that become models. But the thing that has been most helpful is to forgive myself because I've harmed people both in the course of the job I have and then interpersonally. I had been married for 38 years and got a divorce. In the course of that, my sense of self-hate had built up to this monumental height and intensity. My folks got divorced when I was around seven, eight. Single family household, financially struggling for many, many years. Part of me staying in that marriage as long as I did was because 
I didn't want to be like my daddy. I'm like, I'll abandon my kids. And I didn't. I mean, they were 35 years old when I left, and they still took it hard. But an acknowledgement that I did the best that I could and that I probably wouldn't change anything that I did. I mean, I know I have regrets. And gee, if I had a chance to do over, there's some things I would probably do over. But most of the things, you know, the hardships that I've endured, I've been actually thankful for them because I learned from them. It made me stronger. In the course of it, there were harms that were done. And so that became burdensome for me to decide how to forgive myself because then with that I can now start that love myself process. So, you know, part of that was the spiritual journey that I began with. These men that I would say when I first met them, I go, hey brother, what's up? First thing I would do is check my wallet, see if it's still in place. Now these are men that we say to each other, I think pretty standardly, we love each other. We mean it. It creates a camaraderie a male bonding process that I've never had. And I would assert that most men don't have because we don't want to show weakness. We got this toxic male masculinity thing that we need to adhere to. I don't need no counseling. I ain't crazy. And that's a cultural thing. But with this group, I had a group of people that they said it was okay, held me in this place, emotional and spiritual place. I grew. I'm elderly. Don't, you, don't, you don't want to be elder. <laughs> actually, I don't want to be elderly, but I am elder. and It's actually an okay place to be. And I'm thankful for it. And, and these men helped me to accept that role that I've always pushed away from because uh, I don't like being that guy. I didn't fit the model as I saw it to be. But these group of men, I really say to them, thank you. And I love them. We hug each other. Now, now we can't do any hugging because, you know, the COVID-19 stuff is all over the place. It doesn't mean I've stopped having that emotional connection. And that really cemented the part that said, I'm okay. I'm a good person. It's just not all in my head. You know, there's some other people who actually believe I'm that way. So it's my community that gives me the ability to get over my inability to embrace love in a healthy way. My community has been able to support me because it's hard to love somebody else if you don't love yourself. And it's real easy to hate everybody if you hate yourself. And so I went through this mode of undoing my self-hate and then realizing that I'm okay. Maslow has this hierarchy of needs. And by this process of reaching this camaraderie and relationships, It pushed me beyond into almost a transcendental phase, uh, being in community and helping community to transform itself. And those relationships have been a a true blessing for me. Thank you, John, and thank you, Ade. Thank you, Judge. Appreciate you. Doc, what gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and be loved? How will you overcome it? Thank you. It's a complex question, complex answer that I'm going to give. But I think the most simple and straightforward piece of it is vulnerability. My lack thereof and my lack thereof in others. I wear armor 24 hours a day. And it's armor protecting from the macroaggressions and the microaggressions. And so when you have armor on, 
24 hours a day, it's hard to give love, hard to receive love because there's this constant thickness between you and someone else. And this armor is all over my body. It's not a place where I have an opening. And I've had to do that in order to survive. At least that's what I think. Is that false? Probably. But it's prevented me from being in more loving relationships. Also on my head, there's a helmet. And I can't take that helmet off. It's a chin strap on that helmet that is screwed on with some titanium screw or some vibranium or something like that that won't come off of my head. So I can't think about love in a way that I lets it penetrate my thick skull. Part of that is this steady readiness for action. When you're always ready for action, do you take time to be open to being in a space with others and receiving what they're offering? And can you offer that back to them? And the stress of what I put upon myself and what I allow other stress to come to me manifest in fatigue and tiredness. And when you're tired and fatigued, it's hard to love, definitely physically, but it's hard to love emotionally when you're tired because you're trying to gird yourself up. You're trying to get your energy level back up so that you can be available. And that, by definition, almost is making yourself not have time for love. And love is an investment. It's an investment of time. It's an investment of space. You have to go to the love and you have to be in places to receive love. The part of that is taking on many roles. We have our daytime role of being whatever position we're being paid for, but then also have the dual responsibility of being there for other people, representing black people, representing the black voice, representing the black male voice. And so you don't have time really to sit and ponder around how you're gonna engage in loving relationships. And so this readiness, always readiness for action, I think prevents us from being vulnerable to be in spaces with other people, to be in love. And we, I think this is part of this toxic masculinity where we can't turn it off because we think if we lose or we get defeated, are we willing to accept that loss and see failure as a growing experience? But we think the price is too high. I think that the price is too high to fail. And so I don't want that vulnerability. And so if I'm going to be vulnerable, it's definitely difficult for me to create the climate and to create the conditions to be in a loving relationship. I have to think about where's the root cause of this. The symptom is maybe I don't have as much love in my life as I'd like, but I have a loving wife. I have a loving daughter, loving parents that are still around. But I think we could actually have even a stronger relationship if I was to avail myself more openly to more parties. And so I've been in a protection mode. And so I have a, a tight knit family, but maybe that family hasn't been open to other people because again, there's that protection. We can go all the way back to what's perceived to be a real story. Maybe it's not a real story of back in slave time and it's represented by Willie Lynch and how we put generations against each other and we put genders against each other. And that probably has some merit to it. I don't know if the story is real or not, but I think we've had a manifestation and I'm part of it where we have to be suspicious in some regards of other people. Suspicious of other genders, suspicious of other males for sure, 
suspicious of people who are older and those who are younger, that they don't have your best interest in mind. But the only thing that is saving me from being able to have really great relationships is faith. And I know that I'm not in control of what's going on. And God is love, and I subscribe to that philosophy. And so if he is omnipotent and manifesting everything, then I should be in more love relationships, and that allows me to open up to those. But bringing it full circle, again, I think it's about lack of attentiveness to being vulnerable. And I think that's the preventive piece from being in uh, super healthy love relationships. I have a lot of love. I spread a lot of love, but I can have more if I would avail myself to it. I gotta figure out a way to take the armor off, gotta figure out a way to take the helmet off so I can extend my gifts and the gifting of others to me and so we can build together. That's what I think about when we talk about love. Rich, rich, rich. Brothers, three words to describe what are you grateful to or for? Brother Kev. For you all. Brother Day, what are you grateful to for? Fidelity, fatherhood, and faith. Brother Art. Love, my ancestors, and family. Doc. Grateful for learning. I'm grateful for the love I receive, the love I give, and the love that exists. And I'm grateful for the legacy that has been built on my behalf and that I'll be building forward. Judge. I'm grateful for my ancestors whose shoulders I stand on. Perpetual curiosity keeps me young. That's so real. Brother Reggie. Also grateful for love as I see synonymous to God. Grateful for my family, and as others said, you know, for my ancestors. And that's another piece I really want to continue to work on, is digging into that, learning about that, staying connected to that. And then working on being grateful for me. Brothers, I want to express deep gratitude to you for showing up as your authentic self, for sharing your voice with us and with others that will take the time to listen, to better understand our story. My heart, my soul, it's there, it's with you. So thank you. I'd also like to thank Indivisible and Stephen Cox for hosting this space, Chris Frankel for connecting Stefan and I, and thank you listeners out there that take the time for this. These brothers went to a real deep space and we're hoping that you cherish and connect with it in some form or fashion. I wanna thank my wife, Keisha, my children, my family, my friends, my community. Thank you, brothers. I appreciate you and I value you. Until the next time. Enormous thanks to John Miller and everybody who participated in this extraordinary discussion. Uh, Before we go, I will mention that Black Lives Matter Seattle King County is calling for a general strike on Friday, June 12th. John is still on the line with us. John, is there anything that you would care to say about that? Um, I want to say that I am definitely impressed by how Black Lives Matter is um, navigating um, and standing up for um, justice 
and against injustices and racism. Uh, and I'm hoping that our community out there uh, shows solidarity in a way that is authentic to them. Well, again, John, my deep, deep gratitude to you for this week. Thanks. Thank you. And that is it for this week's show. I, like John, would also like to extend my thanks to Chris Franco and a big thanks to Madison Pate for her editing help this week. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Cowell, And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.